great to be with you tonight. Uh, like I said before, my name is Nick Van Ruth. I'm the Young Adults Pastor here. Uh, should I start this sermon off with a question? It's too late now. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, good pick up. Um, well, we've been working through this series uh, through Mark's Gospel, Kingdom Questions, looking at uh, questions of Jesus and questions asked by Jesus. And we've been uh, using that to discover what is the kingdom of God and who is the king. And today, tonight, we get to probably the most important question uh, of the whole series, of the whole book of, of Mark. And that is, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked that of his disciples. Now, uh, we're going to um, answer that question collaboratively. Last week, Mark introduced us to the amazing online tool, Menti. Uh, so if everyone wants to get out uh, their phones uh, and go to uh, menti.com, there's, the, um, there's the website and then the code as well. You type in that code and that will come up with the question which will answer collaboratively, who do you say Jesus is? And uh, we won't show the results just yet, Tim, but if you want to jump up there, uh, log in and answer that question. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? We'll take a, a moment to do that. Go ahead, Tim. Yeah. So there's uh, a lot of things up there. God's Son, Savior, Christ, Redeemer, Hope, Messiah. Doesn't expect much of me. Not sure about that one. Our friend, the light and example, leader, complete, the father I never had, hope, there's other things coming up. Uh, this morning we had um, uh, Doesn't Judge Me. We had um, Republican. <laughs> uh, that was concerning. But I wonder if you know where I'm going with this. You know, Jesus doesn't expect much of me. He's Republican. He's, he shares my political agenda. He... Um, he, you know, loves me no matter what. He's okay with my life choices. That's not the true Jesus. Who gets to define who Jesus is? Do we get to say who Jesus is? Or does he? Does his word? And what I want to um, uh, talk about tonight is investigating the, the question, do we follow the true Jesus or a Jesus we've created for ourselves? Do we follow the true Jesus or a Jesus that we've created for ourselves? And what does it mean to follow the true Jesus? 
Thanks, Tim. You can bring the slides back up. Um, so we're, like I said, we're through, running through Mark's gospel. Uh, the first half of the gospel, uh, we see a whole heap of miracles and signs and wonders and teaching. And the first half of the gospel kind of explores who Jesus is. And then the second half of the gospel explores what does he come to do? And what does it mean to follow him? Uh, so expect some really challenging uh, sermons after tonight because tonight's passage splits the gospel in two. It's the pivot for, it, for when, when it turns off who Jesus is to what's he come to do. And our passage explores those two questions or, or certainly uh, those three questions. Who Jesus is, what does he come to do, and what does it mean to follow him? So if you want to grab out your Bibles or look up on the screen, we're going to read this together, and then we'll uh, unpack it together. So Mark chapter 8 from verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. What about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have uh, in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. He then called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. For what good is it that someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So like I said before, our passage uh, is in the middle of Mark's gospel. And uh, in this scene, Jesus is, is traveling with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. So kind of outside uh, Jerusalem, outside the Israelite area and kind of away from the action. And it's at this point, uh, you know, Jesus has been doing all these signs and wonders and healings and, and teaching. And it's, it's led up to this point uh, where the, the question has been raised again and again, it's time to clarify and Jesus asked, sits his disciples down and asks them, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And his disciples respond. Some say Elijah, a prophet from the Old Testament. Some say um, John the Baptist, uh, who came just before Jesus but was killed. And maybe he's come back and he's doing some stuff. Uh, some say he's a prophet. 
uh, from the Old Testament, from um, days gone by. And so people are trying to explain explain away all these things that Jesus has done uh, in all these different ways. But then Jesus says, but, but what, about, what about you? Who do you say that I am? I think um, it's only very easy to hide behind other people's profession of faith, to hide behind our parents' faith or uh, hide behind our spouses or families or uh, friends or churches confession of who Jesus is but at some point in every person's existence we'll be confronted with this question who is Jesus who is Jesus and the answer has eternal consequences and Peter uh, stands up amongst the disciples. He, he um, you know, all the eyes are on him. What's he going to say? He bravely, brashly, boldly says to Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. Now, let's just take a moment and step outside of the narrative uh, and just look at that word for a bit. The Messiah. What does that mean? The Christ, like uh, certainly a lot of people uh, in the West uh, in this day and age consider Christ, isn't it just Jesus' last name? Well, no, that's not right. The Christ, um, Christ is Greek for Messiah, which is Hebrew for anointed one. Uh, it's the word used to anoint uh, priests or prophets or kings in their role uh, as a priest, prophet, or king. And it's, it's this word that's kind of picked up uh, in the, uh, the time of the New Testament, the first, um, first century AD and, and uh, the few years before that, to, to kind of capture uh, the, the promised king, the trajectory of this promised king from the Old Testament. Because God had created a people for himself, and he, he established a king uh, um, of those people, uh, and there's a whole history of that. Uh, but then throughout that time and, and right throughout the Old Testament, God promises an eternal king, someone who'd come and save God's people and would reign forever. Uh, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, uh, the, the second king, um, David, uh, he, he's having a conversation with the Lord through the prophet Nathan. And uh, in verse 12 and 13, God says to King David, he says this, when, the day, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so the Messiah, uh, the, the word Messiah and Christ is this promised king who will come to save and reign forever. And so when, when Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, he's, he's not just you know, saying his last name. He's saying, you are so much more than a person. You are so much more than, and than just a teacher, just a, a, a prophet. Uh, he's saying, you're the one we've been waiting for. 
You're the one that Israel's been waiting for to bring victory, to, to save us, to reign over us. You are the one that history is centered around. And Jesus tells Peter and tells the disciples uh, not to share that information, not to tell other people about this. And some people think that this is because uh, Jesus didn't want any extra attention. Like, if Jesus was the Messiah, then he'd get all this um, attention for being the promised king, and he doesn't want that. And I don't think that's very likely, uh, because we've seen already Jesus consistently is followed by crowds of thousands. He's already got a whole heap of attention. And I'm not, I don't think that's why he doesn't want his disciples to share it. What I think the reason is, is because Peter didn't have it right. He didn't have it quite right. He said the right thing. He said the right thing, but what he meant wasn't correct, wasn't quite right. And I think that's more likely the reason why Jesus told him not to share it, because he didn't understand it, because of what comes next. Jesus begins to explain what does being the Christ mean, How will he usher in his kingdom? How will he save his people? And he says that he would suffer, that he would be rejected, that he would die, and that he would rise again. He says that he will achieve victory through defeat. He would obtain power through weakness. Glory through humiliation. Now, Peter does not like what he hears, uh, and he rebukes him. Peter doesn't want a Christ who suffers, who is humiliated, who is weak and defeated and rejected, you know, rejected by the religious elite. Surely we should be in their good books. So he says, you know, he rebukes Jesus. He says, no, 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 Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. No, this is not what you're meant to be doing. You're meant to be doing it a different way. You know, don't, don't say that. This is who you are. He wants a Christ who will bring victory uh, by force, not through failure. He, he wants a Christ who's not rejected, but celebrated. He wants uh, a Christ who would uh, free Peter and the Israelite people from the Roman oppressors uh, who had conquered them. Peter had created for himself a Jesus, a Christ, who was not the true Jesus. Because Peter wasn't content with the real Jesus. He wanted a Jesus who suited him and his agenda, his needs, his political agenda. A Jesus that would solve his problems. And it's all good um, giving Peter a hard time for, for doing that, but We all do that, don't we? In some way, we create for ourselves a a Jesus to suit our own uh, purposes. We create a Jesus who will sort out our problems and create a Jesus who will approve of our lifestyle. We create a Jesus for ourselves who doesn't actually expect much from us. Uh, We created Jesus who won't judge us, but will only love us. We created Jesus uh, where we can tell him what is right and wrong based on how we think and feel. 
You know, I wonder, do we put words into Jesus' mouth that he never said? You know, Jesus, you, you, you told me that I would get a job. Jesus, you told me that I would um, uh, be able to, uh, you know, buy that house or, or be at this stage, at this age, or you provide me a spouse that I wouldn't be lonely. We, have we put words into Jesus' mouth that aren't, he never actually said? We're creating a Jesus for ourselves. And when, when that Jesus doesn't live up to those promises, live up to those expectations, and, you know, and in a way, rightfully so, we turn away, are we rejecting the true Jesus? Or are we just rejecting a, a Jesus we've just made up for ourselves? And do you know what, who's behind that? It's Satan. That's right. It's Satan. It's the work of the devil, the great deceiver, who actually is skewing our image of Jesus uh, as one of his great strategies, great schemes. You see, the first goal of Satan is that we would not hear of Jesus. And, but, but when we do hear Jesus, his second goal is that we would not accept him. But when we do accept him, his third aim is that we would accept the wrong Jesus. And so that is why Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get away from here, Satan. It's because it's the devil at work, skewing the minds of Peter to to mar the image of Jesus in his mind. So he's created for himself a Jesus that is just not true. A Jesus who promises health and wealth and prosperity, uh, you know, that Jesus is not real. That Jesus can't save us. You know, because when we, when we worship a Jesus that we've created for ourselves, we're worshiping ourselves. And Satan's won. And we have lost. So why did Jesus come? He, he didn't come to deal with our superficial problems. He came to deal with our deepest problem. He came to deal uh, with our sin, the, the fact that we've rejected God as king and put ourselves in that place of authority. He came to lay down his life, to suffer, to be rejected, to die, to pay a punishment that we deserved, to give us a life that we could never attain, to pay for our sin so that we could be forgiven. And so the call of a Christian is not to create a Jesus for ourselves that we can follow at our own convenience and and ease, but to follow the true Jesus and to follow him to the cross. And so this last section, the last half of the passage here, we're going to explore what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And in this section, I'll read it in a second. Um, He gives a command. He gives logic as to why that command. And he gives a warning. So have a look. Flip back. Have a look at verse 34 with me. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. 
to the command. That's the command. We're called to deny ourselves. Now, that's not, that's not to say that we deny something from ourselves. It's not that we refrain from eating chocolate or uh, refrain from doing anything that would give us joy or pleasure or happiness uh, for the rest of our lives. It's not denying something from ourselves, but denying ourself itself. Denying uh, ourself. So if, if sin is... Uh, rejecting God as king and setting up ourselves as the center of our lives, as the purpose of our lives, then to follow Jesus is to reverse that, is to set ourselves aside and to submit to Jesus as our king. It's not denying something from ourselves, but denying our self. And this looks different for different people. For the disciples who first heard this, uh, it, it meant leaving job and family and eventually being killed for following Jesus. And so for some people, and particularly in the East, like that, that is a reality of what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, but for, for others, it, it looks differently, different. What does it mean to deny ourselves? For those of us who are proud, it might mean um, lowering ourselves, humbling ourselves, and exalting Jesus, exalting others above us. For those who uh, are greedy or are prone to wanting more, it's not feeding that desire for more and more, more possessions, more popularity, more a better career. Not feeding that, but setting it aside and becoming generous. For the lazy, it might mean picking ourselves up to serve a purpose beyond ourselves, greater than ourselves, to serve a purpose uh, that brings Jesus glory, not us. Not the easy option or the convenient option, but, but actually making a sacrifice for Jesus. So what is it for you? What is it for you? Where in our lives are we indulging ourselves rather than denying ourselves? What, uh, what bad behavior or selfish decision or greedy attitude are we justifying? And we need to change. You know, I am not my own king anymore. I belong to someone else now. And in fact, I need to die. And that's what the second uh, part of this command is, to take up our cross. Now, um, his historically in recent years, uh, somehow that's, uh, the meaning of that has changed from you know, an instrument of execution to a mild inconvenience in our lives. Like someone might say, you know, my cross to bear is uh, you know, dealing with young adults. No, no, that's probably not that bad. <laughs> no, but that's ridiculous. And dealing with young adults is a joy. I love it. But, you know, my cross to bear is, is um, having to drive 20 minutes to church or, you know, I, I, like, that's silly. But, and some people have legitimate challenges, but they're not your, that's not your cross to bear. If you want to use biblical language, call it the thorn in your flesh, but it's not your cross to bear. To bear a cross is to pick up the instrument of your execution 
It's, it's clear, like, think of what the first uh, disciples and the people hearing Jesus for the first time would have thought of. It's a gruesome, horrible, torturous tool. And to pick that up and to carry your cross. The, the only time you would carry your cross is on the way to be crucified. It's to pick up a symbol of shame, of humiliation, of submission, of death. It's the exact opposite of indulgence. It's a posture uh, to take up a cross. It's a posture to say that my life is not my own. I belong to someone else. And so it's following the path of Jesus to suffering, to die, to death. And so if we were to create for ourselves a Jesus to serve our plan and purposes, uh, that is no trouble for us to follow. We remake Jesus to serve our purposes. But to follow Jesus is to be remade to serve his purposes. To make sacrifices for his glory. And that's what the f- following the true Jesus entails. It entails all of us. Our entire being uh, completely and utter surrendered to Jesus. Now, people might ask, and, and to be honest, I ask, is, is that even worth it? Why would someone give entirely of themselves to something else? You know, what, what about me? What about, what about my soul? And that's where uh, the logic comes in. That's why Jesus moves on to explain the the gospel logic of why we give our whole lives to Christ. And and here he he unpacks the great divine equation of the gospel. So from verse 35, Jesus says, Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Those who want to hang on to their life to protect what they have, to to hold back and create for themselves a a Jesus that um, that they don't have to sacrifice to or or, uh, give over to, they might gain the world. They might gain the entire world, but they will lose their soul. What good is it to, to obtain everything this world has to offer, but to lose our soul? You know, what in this life, what in, what in this world could save us? What in this world could protect our soul from the, from the judgment from God for turning away from him? Nothing. We're called to give it up, to hand it over, to to deny ourselves and to take up our cross. Jim Elliott, who was a um, uh, a missionary to Ecuador, he actually he died on a on a trip to Ecuador. Um, uh, when as he arrived, uh, people the the natives uh, met him with spears and killed him and, and his team. His wife later followed him uh, to this place, uh, Elizabeth Elliot, and and she actually ended up having a massive, fruitful ministry with these people and sharing the gospel with them. Uh, but but Jim 
uh, knew the risk he was taking. He was giving over his life to to minister, to share the gospel with these Ecuadorian um, people, Orca people. And this is what he says. This is what he says. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep so that he can gain what he cannot lose. Friends, I hope that you you get the picture that to deny ourselves and to take up our cross is not a work or something we need to do in order to be saved, but it's actually an act of faith. It's not salvation by works that, you know, if we, if we give up enough, uh, then we're saved. No, no, it's, a, it's, it's an act of faith saying that Jesus is enough for me. And so I can give up everything. It's a total act of trust in Jesus to, to give up our lives, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross. Because nothing in this world could save us. Only Jesus can save us. Taking up our cross and following Jesus to the cross, we do that because it's only at the cross we are saved. And Jesus concludes this section with a warning in verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. Guys, I've got to admit, I found this warning super challenging. Super challenging. Uh, you know, we're ashamed of Jesus. Those who are ashamed of Jesus, uh, Jesus will be ashamed of when he returns. And do you know what? I think, um, I reckon in, in some ways, my job is easier, a lot easier than a lot of yours. In some ways, I've chosen a much easier path being a pastor than those of us in the room who are in secular work. You know, I have no trouble talking to my co-workers about Jesus. It, it comes very naturally. I barely ever get any pushback. In fact, people celebrate it and love it. And they they uh, talk to me about Jesus. But there's a lot of people in this room, at university and workplaces, where to talk about Jesus is a big risk, is a big challenge. We're not sure of what the response would be. Certainly society seems to be getting more and more negative towards things of faith, particularly Christianity. And so it's awkward to bring up faith. It's awkward to invite our friends to Alpha because, you know, what if they think we're weird? What if, well, how would they respond? And do you know what? I've, I've been thinking a lot um, uh, about this verse particular. I think one of the things we need to learn to do is to live in the awkward to live in the awkward. You know, we're, we're going we're gonna to share uh, the gospel. We're going to share uh, our faith with people. And you know what? That might be awkward, but it's life-giving for them. It might be awkward for us. It might, you know, be, we'd stumble around a conversation, but it's life-giving for them that we could share the Jesus that can save them. And I think, and in fact, the fear and the awkwardness, I reckon most of the time, particularly in the West, actually probably entirely of the time in the West, that fear and that awkwardness is actually in ourselves, is not actually reflective of, of how people are responding. You know, to, to, 
to share uh, with your boss, hey, I, I go to church, could I have Sunday afternoons off? That's a really awkward and, and challenging and scary thing to do. But the impact of that is people find out you're a Christian. They come ask questions. They, they say, hey, that's awesome. And, and the response is actually so, so much better than you might expect. We've got to learn to live in the awkward. And the reality is the awkward's not actually there. And the motivation of this, of not being ashamed, is, is for when Jesus returns. When Jesus returns. How we respond to Jesus when he returns to judge. When he asks us, who do you trust in? Will we respond, Jesus, I trust in you. Uh, but also this career I've been uh, growing for myself, for this reputation I have amongst my colleagues and co-workers, for these, these things, this family, this responsibility I have, this partner, these relationships I have, these possessions. You know, it's a gospel of Jesus plus. You know, often we talk uh, about, you know, the gospel of Jesus plus works, uh, and that's no good. But a Jesus plus anything else. Jesus plus security or, or, or a house or a career or um, Jesus plus what we want. That's not the true Jesus. That's not a Jesus who would save us. So when Jesus does come to judge and he says, who do you trust in? Would we say, I trust in you alone. And so I've got given up everything to follow you. The true Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and that led him to humiliation, suffering, rejection, death. And following him means following him there. But Jesus rose again. And following Jesus uh, to that point of, of giving up everything means he will give us Everything. He will give us new life. He will give us an eternal life. We would be with him forever. Nothing in this world could possibly compare to the great promises and hope that we have in eternity. Following Jesus means giving up everything and following Jesus to the cross. And we bring nothing, but we gain everything. I want to finish with a quote from this book, The Calvary Road. Um, this is one of my favorite books. Uh, by Roy, Roy Hessian. Uh, has anyone read this by chance? Have you read it? No. That's all right. You will soon. Uh, Emily, my wife. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> anyway, I read, this, I read this book about once a year. Um, uh, and it's all about the Calvary Road. It's about denying ourselves and taking up our cross. It's excellent. It's super challenging. Um, but in it, I'll, I'll read this quote and then a poem that he writes in it. Uh, Roy says, uh, you see, the only life that pleases God and that can be victorious is his life, is Jesus' life. Never our life, no matter how hard we try. But in, in as much as our self-centered life is the exact opposite of Jesus's, of Jesus' self-sacrificial life, we can never be filled with his life unless we are prepared for God to bring our life constantly to death. In other words, there's if if we're in other words, Jesus can't come in and rule our lives if ourselves, our self is in the way. And so Roy says this, Lord bend that proud and stiff-necked eye. 
Help me bow the head and die, beholding him on Calvary who bowed his head for me. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you humbled, broken. Uh, this, is, this is a hard word. God, it's been challenging for me and it's been challenging for many of us, I'm sure. And God, this is, this is, this is a, a difficult thing to, to grasp, to think of, giving up our lives, and particularly in the West and what that looks like for us. But God, we pray that you would reveal to us the areas of our lives that we are clinging on to ourselves, that we are indulging ourselves. And God, we pray we would let that go, that we would turn away from ourselves and cling to Christ. We pray you do a work in us and and show us where uh, the devil is deceiving us, where we're creating for ourselves a Jesus who is just not true or real. And God, we pray we would would turn and cling and trust in the true Jesus, where he alone can save us and where it's it's only him uh, that saves us, not him and anything else. And so, God, we pray that we would... We would test our hearts. We would reflect deeply on this and that you would challenge us and change us. And God, out of this, we pray as we give our lives over to you that you would use us. Whatever small sacrifices we might make, God, is we pray you would take that and you would bless us, that you would grow us and you, you would bring that for your glory. That the work you do in our lives, the way you change us, the way you remake us for your purposes, that that we would be remade and we would uh, we would be um, obedient and selfless and and bold and and courageous in serving you, in in bringing you glory and sharing our faith with you. We pray particularly for university students who are stepping out and standing out in their jumpers. And, and um, we pray also for those who have invited uh, people to Alpha and people who will, be, who will be inviting others to Alpha. And we pray uh, for the conversations we have at our desk tomorrow at work or wherever we are, Lord. We pray you would work through us, that we would not be ashamed of you, that we would celebrate who you are and share that with everyone around us, all for your glory, Lord Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.